Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top name. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We are live with breaking news from Washington, where an FDA advisory panel has just voted to recommend approval of a Pfizer booster shot. At least for older and more vulnerable Americans, this after rejecting a third shot of the vaccine for the general population an hour earlier. Confused yet? We'll talk about it with Bloomberg Health reporter Angelica Levito and more with Dr. Peter Lurie, president of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, formerly with the FDA. Give us a peek inside of this conversation, maybe get a sense of where we're going. And later, we'll talk with security firm Kroll about security around the Capitol ahead of this weekend's J6 rally, as they're calling it. As well, today, our Friday Reporters Roundtable with Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick and Bloomberg Radio and TV political director Jody Schneider. The first word came down this afternoon from the FDA's advisory panel on whether to recommend approval of the Pfizer booster shot for the general population. And by that, I mean people 16 and over. So um, this vote did not pass since the majority voted no. Thank you. Thank you. Final tally 16 to 2 after members of the committee heard conflicting data throughout the day. It was an hours long meeting adding to the confusion around all this followed by another vote. They they took a second vote. This one just happened unanimously recommending boosters for people over 65 and those considered at high risk. Generating the headline on the terminal FDA advisors back a narrower authorization for Pfizer booster. And we're joined for the latest on this by Bloomberg Health reporter Angelica Levito. Angelica, we thank you for joining us. Did you expect such an overwhelming result on people 16 and over? Well, I think it came clear throughout the day that there was a lot of skepticism that every single person who has already gotten two shots needed a third. So as the day went on, I think I wasn't really surprised to see that they went the way they did. However, it was unusual to watch them just um, changing course in real time and literally writing the second vote in the middle of their break after they rejected the the first one. So that wasn't planned. They decided to go back in for that vote, kind of a game day call here today. They did because it was so obvious that people kept saying over and over, we're okay recommending a booster for people who are 65 and older or at high risk, but we are not comfortable recommending people who are 16, in their 20s maybe even, mm-hmm. getting this third shot. So they decided to, um, to narrow that recommendation down to make people feel better. So, Angelica, this is the first step, right? We're, we're now going to have to wait to hear from the full agency, and the FDA typically does what this panel tells it to do, right? 
Exactly. So this is just an advisory committee. They are not members of the FDA. I mean, members of the FDA do sit on these meetings and weigh in, but these are simply advisors, and the agency can now decide to follow the recommendation or go their own way. And typically the FDA does follow the recommendation, but that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. So now we will wait to see what they do. And if they do approve a booster for at least some people, then next week we will see the CDC's advisory committee talk about how to exactly narrow those recommendations. We had, back when the, the, the vaccines were originally uh, being approved, we'd hear from the panel, and then within a day or two, we'd hear from the, the full agency. Do you expect that quick a turnaround? And then we've got the CDC next week. If the FDA says no, will the CDC follow? You're exactly right. We've seen the FDA responding almost within hours of its advisory meetings. This one is a little bit more contentious, okay. so I wouldn't be surprised. And since the CDC advisory meeting is already scheduled for mid-next week, they have some breathing room. There's mm-hmm. less pressure, I think, whereas before it was we need to get these shots out as fast as we can so we can get them into the arms of the American public. Lastly, Angelica, what about Moderna? What about J&J? Those are separate. We're talking Pfizer exclusively here, right? Will there be other votes on the other vaccines? We're talking about Pfizer specifically today. Moderna does have an application for its own booster shot. And J&J, we still, um, it's still not clear whether people will um, get a booster, a second shot in that case. And so it's still really early to know. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people I've heard are frustrated if they've gotten J&J and something that health officials will have to try to communicate effectively, especially if they do approve the Pfizer booster. They have to make it clear that it's just for Pfizer. Great reporting today from Angelica Levito in the great city of Boston. We thank you for coming on, Angelica. Uh, in the clutch here, this stuff all just broke, and we want to continue the conversation with someone who's very familiar with the inner workings of the agency. Dr. Peter Lurie is president of the Center for Science in the Public Interest, former associate commissioner for public health strategy and analysis at the FDA. Doctor, welcome. Did the panel do the right thing today? You know, I think they did. Um, you know, it was a, a, a tough meeting, to be sure. Um, you know, one vote uh, that turned out unfavorably, I, I dare say, for at least leaders at the agency, um, followed by a modification, um, which was a form of consensus, really unanimity. So um, I think they got it right in the end. What do you make of the confusion uh, that has been wrought here, uh, starting with the White House kind of getting ahead of the agencies, recommending that booster shots begin Monday, this next week when the president spoke a month ago? We're, we were looking ahead to that week in September. Uh, this is the concern, right, that people say, you know what, I'm done with these vaccines. They don't know if they're coming or going. Well, I certainly hope they uh, don't reach that, that conclusion because these are vaccines that are extraordinarily effective and a true accomplishment of science uh, in getting them to us as quickly as we've been able to. Yeah. Um, I do think, though, that the White House uh, got a little bit ahead of itself uh, in this case by, in effect, endorsing vaccines more widely before doing what we always do, which is go to the FDA and then to the CDC. Um, and so I, I think there was a perception that there was pressure on the agency. Um, I think that the advisors understood that. I think they pushed back against it. Mm-hmm. I think they, in effect, stood up for the agency and its independence. Um, and I think it's something of a rebuke to the White House for that. 
Um, on the other hand, I think what the White House will likely say is, look, we were always going to prioritize people of uh, what have you, 65, uh, in any case, people at high risk. We were always going to go with them first. So we'll be able to start as soon as possible with them anyway. And they'll probably call it a victory. Doctor, this is President Biden one month ago. Pending approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC's Committee of Outside Experts will be ready to start these booster, this booster program during the week of September 20, in which time anyone vaccinated on or before January 20 will be eligible to get a booster shot. Do you have a sense of who was advising the White House on this and, and why the confusion between agencies? Well, you know, I, I think there's even, frankly, a confusion within agencies, and, and that's even in its way more upsetting. I mean, I yeah. don't think that the White House heard from its usual advisors, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Murthy, the Surgeon General and others, um, and they made that decision. But they were supported in that by senior officials at FDA, the acting commissioner, Dr. Woodcock, and the head of the biologic center, it's called, uh, which includes vaccines, Dr. Marks. Um, but extraordinarily... Um, just this past week, uh, a couple of slightly more junior people at FDA uh, penned an article in the launch of the leading British medical journal in which they took issue with the position of the president, Dr. Woodcock and Dr. Marks, in effect. Um, and so the whole meeting had that as a, as a kind of a subtext to it. Um, in the end, I dare say that the more junior folks uh, at FDA um, probably won the day. Um, because they came out in their article against widespread booster vaccination. We actually all know people. Uh, maybe maybe you don't, but a lot of people have already taken it upon themselves to get boosters in some states where they're available. Doctor, is that going to become a health risk or does that add to the confusion? Is that a concern of yours? Well, I, I think it is a concern. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it, ideally, people follow the recommendations of the FDA once they're finalized. And as your reporter pointed out, they haven't quite been. And once we've heard from the CDC as well, which we also haven't yet. Um, but assuming it goes the same way as this vote today, and I would speculate that it will, um, you know, following those guidelines is the most orderly way to get vaccines to the people most at risk. So, um, you know, if some of these folks who are uh, pushing hard to get vaccines, even though they would be indicated for you know, uh, them based on this vote. Uh, if they're pushing aside folks who really ought to be getting the vaccine, then that's a problem. Um, we should try to keep things orderly. Um, and my guess that will be the order prescribed by the vote today. Dr. Laurie, you mentioned Janet Woodcock, the, the acting commissioner for the FDA, who is now reportedly not in the race for the permanent position. I just wonder from a from a management standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, we've gone months without a sense of who is going to end up leading this agency at a very precarious time. Is that impacting operations and opinions at the FDA? Well, you know, I can't say, of course, since I since I'm not there, but I, I think it's unquestionable that an agency that doesn't have a permanent head is an agency that's defanged to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think it is imperative at this point, especially given the pandemic, um, for them to find somebody permanent. That increases the credibility of the agency when they go up to meetings with the White House, for example. So the sooner the better, from my point of view. That would be one heck of a uh, approval process, I imagine. But it is, it's kind of surprising that there aren't more uh, candidates that have been brought forth by this White House. 
Well, they've considered a number, including Dr. Woodcock, who's a mm-hmm. longstanding uh, official at FDA and, uh, you know, has a, you know, highly creditable career under her belt. Um, but she, uh, in the view of some, was uh, implicated in the, the problems of the opioid epidemic. And right. as a result, certain senators have said that they're not willing to vote for her. And so uh, I, I didn't know to what degree she really was the, the favorite candidate of the White House. Um, but I think everybody feels that that has somewhat sent them back to the drawing board. Dr. Peter Lurie, we thank you for your expertise. Sound On is brought to you by Barish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community. For 20 years, they've been fighting for those who continue to get sick from the 9-11 toxins. Free health care and compensation available. Visit 911victims.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Unclear what the FDA will do with the recommendations, but the agency tends to follow the advice of its advisory committee, as we've been hearing, which is why today's 16 to 2 vote against a Pfizer booster for the general population is significant. And we bring in our Friday Reporters Roundtable for analysis with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick and Bloomberg Radio and TV political director Jody Schneider. Jody, I'd love to start with you on this because you covered COVID for so long uh, from for Bloomberg and, and from around the world. With regard to this on a political standpoint, we heard the uh, the comments from Joe Biden a month ago. He was essentially telling people to get ready to start their boosters on the 20th of September. How did the White House get so ahead of the FDA? Well, that's the real question, Joe. Now that we know what the FDA expert uh, panel's recommendation is, and we presume we will see something like this from both the CDC and, and the FDA itself next week, that's the real question. Why did the White House make everybody think that, you know, this Monday, the September 20th, we could start going and getting those boosters? Uh, and was that a political maneuver? Uh, the White House obviously is still pushing very hard that people get vaccinated and realizes that vaccination is the key to trying to get ahead of this variant, this mm-hmm. Delta variant, and has said so for months. So where were they on this and, and exactly where were they getting their advice? I think those are real questions. And, you know, another not so great week for Joe Biden uh, yes, came right. out of Afghanistan. But now we have the flap with the French. They just mm-hmm. uh, recalled their ambassador over that the uh, this deal with um that they the felt they were pushed submarines. out of, yeah. and uh, and now we have this other news. So it's uh, it's another tough tough week. But this is a real question. I think that we're going to be uh, having a lot of discussion about this uh, in coming weeks. Why did the White House make us think that we were all going to get boosters when now their own experts are saying not so fast? I know that I don't want to play the the politics all the way to the end of this, Jack, because it gets to be you know somewhat dangerous. 
giving people the wrong idea, but I'm assuming that Republicans are going to make hay out of this, that, that, that the Republicans on Capitol Hill are going to say, I told you so. I'm, I'm actually not entirely sure that's the case. Really? I had asked around a little bit before Biden made his announcement and after, um, and I was surprised the degree to which lawmakers on Capitol Hill in both parties, obviously you have some sort of anti-vax members, but mostly uh, they, they really let the White House take the lead on the issue of boosters. And I spoke a while back to Tom Cole, who's the top uh, Republican in the House on funding HHS, uh-huh. and said, are, you know, are you guys going to get involved? Are you going to write parameters for booster shots? Are you going to give money? Uh, what do you need? And he said, uh, the White House will tell us what they need, and I think there'd be bipartisan support for backing wow. booster shots. So it was really notable that Congress let the, the president kind of run with this, mm-hmm. and then it's the FDA that trips his plan up. Maybe I should have asked you uh, that question somewhat differently. What will some Republican governors make of this in the next couple of days? They're going to be raising money. They're going to be talking about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, on the campaign trail, the the vaccine issue is is a, a really wide, wild one. And as it pertains to states, you know, a lot of the conflict between the White House and Republican governors has been more on the issue of mandates. Mm-hmm. Uh, schools are a tough issue. This is a tough one to see how it's going to play out politically just because, you know, when you when you talk to Republicans, there, there's sort of this fault line developing in terms of how much support there is for vaccines versus opposition to some mandates. It's it's still kind of a, a nebulous issue that's that everybody's feeling their way out of this. I, I hmm. honestly have no idea. I'm encouraged by your response. How Jack. the booster shot issue is going to play. It's, yeah. it's a really tough one to tell. Well, I, let's hope it stays that way. Jody, there was pretty compelling uh, data from Israel showing that booster shot. They started giving boosters out in July in Israel, showing that they helped to, to, to round the bend on a, on a pretty major surge of Delta. Are you surprised that didn't compel more members of the panel today? Yeah, I mean, it was it was somewhat of a surprising decision. I think that uh, people had presumed there would be discussion and given that there's various studies, but that the Israel study did seem to you know have a lot of credence to it and, and got a lot of attention. So um, it is a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of a surprise. However, the FDA and this FDA panel in particular, you might recall, has been you know somewhat cautious at various points. After J&J, after they pulled J&J, mm-hmm. um, you might recall last spring for a while, uh, because there were some reports of, of, of very serious reactions. And they then allowed it to go back, but with some caution. So, And there was a lot of discussion. I listened in at that point uh, to, that, to the, that hearing, and there was a lot of talk about, hey, if we feel like there's any risk at all, we need to make that clear to the public. So I think maybe that's part of this here. Then the other question that you know goes along with this is is how much it's needed. And mm-hmm. they've been telling us all along that two shots protect us pretty well. And they also don't know how much it could protect us against future variants. And that's a question too. Boy, it sure is. And and that that's going to be a completely different conversation, I suspect. But there's also been a push, Jack, to to provide more or at least reserve more doses for the rest of the world that, you know, right. here you guys go. Classic American move, giving yourself a third shot before half the world doesn't get a first one. Does that factor in here on a political level? Well, that's that's a significant issue. I don't know if that really is a driving factor for the FDA. Their reasoning seemed to be more focused on what amount of evidence is this is there that this would be effective. Sure. There are there is the potential for for some negative effect 
effects for people. So that I don't know if that was an issue with the FDA, but it's going to be I mean a more significant politically one. Speaking. Yeah, it's a significant one uh, politically. And actually, to your question about maybe Republicans, uh, how they feel about a, a failure for Biden, it's somewhat of a, a leftist point of view and an international pushback to Biden's plan saying we should we, we should look internationally before bolstering our own domestic needs. Jack Fitzpatrick, Jody Schneider hang out with us for the hour and they'll be back in a bit. Coming up, the fence is back up around the U.S. Capitol. Streets are being closed. Police say they're ready for tomorrow's so-called Justice for J6 rally. We'll talk about it with Jordan Strauss of the security firm Kroll. Stay right here. I'm Joe Matthew and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Capitol Hill is in lockdown again. Members of Congress have been told to stay away from the complex tomorrow as a rally is planned in support of those arrested during the attack on the Capitol in January. Yeah, we've told you it was coming and we'll discuss the security risks ahead this weekend and more broadly on Capitol Hill with Jordan Strauss, managing director at the security firm Kroll, former director for incident management at the White House. As we keep an eye on the Capitol for more reasons than usual, as law enforcement prepares for demonstrations tomorrow in protest of those arrested in the Capitol riot on January 6th. Tom Manger is Assistant Chief for Protective and Intelligence Operations at the Capitol Police. We are planning for a safe event tomorrow. But there have been some threats of violence associated with uh, uh, this, the events for tomorrow. And we have a strong plan in place to ensure uh, that it remains peaceful and that if violence does occur, um, that we can stop it uh, as quickly as possible. He was part of a large briefing earlier today with other law enforcement officials, some federal, some local, who acknowledged increased chatter ahead of this weekend. But they were not specific about the threats. And we're joined now by a security expert, Jordan Strauss, managing director at the security firm Kroll, former director for incident management of the White House National Security Council staff, former director of preparedness and response at the Justice Department. It's quite a business card you have there, Jordan. Welcome. Are you concerned about this weekend, or is this the equivalent of bringing an umbrella to make sure it doesn't rain? Thanks, Joe. First of all, it's great to be back with Bloomberg today. Uh, you know, look, there's no such thing as over-preparing. I mean, worst case from a preparation standpoint uh, any threat gets met appropriately. Best case, nothing happens, and there's an opportunity to rehearse new kinds of information sharing, working across different law enforcement organizations, and in this case, working across different branches of government. I mean, it's important to remember the Capitol Police work for the Capitol, uh, you know, the Article uh, the Article 1 branch, not the Article 2 branch. Everybody else works in, in Article 2. The January 6th insurrection was the most documented crime in history, there's going to be even more cameras and attention and readiness now. I, I think that to do something illegal tomorrow, uh, and it's important to remember that the normal peaceful assembly is protected by the First Amendment. It's an American tradition, even if if, if, if you and me and, and most of your listeners might disagree with what they're, uh, they're, they're, they're protesting, uh, you know, it is protected. And to do something illegal in an environment like that would just be dumb. Yeah, I, we, they were very uh, cagey about details here about what they're prepared to do, but how much of this is deterrent versus preparing for a response, Jordan? 
I'd say it's probably equal parts. You know, this idea of chatter, uh, which is something that, that's very familiar to folks who have worked in the intelligence community or in law enforcement, or, yeah. you know, was familiar to me and, and all of my colleagues. It's a little bit different when you're talking about stuff that's going on and being said by Americans in America. You know, there are real limits, and there should be, to the kinds of uh, of listening that law enforcement and certainly intelligence agencies can do without a warrant on on public platforms. So I think when they're talking about chatter, it is likely either information gleaned from lawful court-authorized surveillance or uh, things they're seeing on public open message boards. But I, I, I think in this case, over-preparation is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's always difficult to see fences and, and visible layers of security around uh, democratic landmarks like the Capitol. But given what happened on January 6th, given other attacks on the Capitol Police this year, given the number of people who died on January 6th, yeah. uh, there, there, there really can't be over-preparation on a day like this. Well, Jordan, if you were advising law enforcement around this, how worried would you be about the Capitol versus the rest of the city? And I have this conversation as we're on the air here today. In the District of Columbia, we've got an, a, a festival. The A Street Festival is happening this weekend. People are going out to eat. People are trying to get out uh, in what will hopefully be a nice weekend. Uh, could that be some kind of a diversion for other funny business, bad business that could happen around the city? You know, there's always a risk. I mean, in the, in the 10 or 11 years that I lived in Washington, sort of working in these spaces, I mean, I did, I did learn a few things. Number one, the citizens of Washington, particularly in times like this, are unusually vigilant. They're, they're much more likely... Uh, than people in other parts of the country to report, you know, something strange on the metro or something concerning. Uh, it's caught some flack recently, but the D.C. Police Department is actually a very professional, uh, uh, you know, very solid law enforcement organization generally. There's a ton of FBI agents uh, and other federal law enforcement headquartered there. So I think if there's a problem, and I do worry a little about, uh, you know, somebody trying to use the pretext of a lawful protest to come in and and do violence, it's likely that the city will be able to handle it well. Remember, this is a city that has a State of the Union every year, um, an inauguration every four years, mm-hmm. and deals with countless dignitaries, lawful, protected protests, you know, controversial Supreme Court decisions every single day. It's, it's a highly, highly resilient city. I, I also think it's going to be pretty hot this weekend, so that, you know, it, 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 it's more likely than, than usual that people are going to be uh, largely staying indoors. A little different than early January. I, I listened to that briefing today, Jordan, in its entirety. And, and if I could pick out real concern, it was when they talked about counter protesters, that they didn't necessarily think people would overrun the fence or that we'd see a repeat of January 6th, but that counter protesters would come up and it would be difficult to control violence between those two groups. How big of a worry is that? Yeah, that's always a worry when you've got controversial activity. Um, you know, you see this, for example, uh, you know, periodically in Philadelphia, you have extraordinarily controversial uh, uh, groups marching and you get, you know, you can get over uh, overreaction. This happens in, in New York and Washington, too. So it's, it's a hard thing to control. But again, law enforcement around Washington are more well-versed than usual with First Amendment activity. I actually think, you know, for, for many of your listeners and certainly for many of our clients, I mean, uh, we're as worried about the violence issue as we are, as we are about our clients or their brands being unwittingly pulled into one side or another here, uh, you know, particularly in times like this when there's so much investment in things like social media ambassadors and the backlash of a public or controversial decision or the affiliation 
with a controversial idea or thought uh, is so incredibly rapid. Um, you know, w- what we see is, is, is worry that like, oh, oh, gosh, you know, what if one of our employees shows up? What if, right. um, you know, one of the, one of our YouTube uh, uh, personalities uh, endorses violence or something like that? Is that mm-hmm. is that going to blow back to our brand? And, you know, that, that, that's the kind of preventable nightmare that, that, that we've been we've been talking to clients about a little bit this week. Jordan Strauss with the perfect Bloomberg angle here. I appreciate a smart talk, Jordan. Thank you for that. Managing director in the business intelligence and investigations practice of security firm Kroll. Spent time as a security expert at the White House in Justice Department. Let's hope that we don't have to worry about anything here tomorrow. But we'll get back to our Friday Reporters Roundtable on this. More on security and tragic news today from Afghanistan. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending some time with us on the fastest hour in politics as we round the bend here with our Reporters Roundtable. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. And we start with tragic news announced today from the Pentagon. Our investigation now concludes that the strike was a tragic mistake. General Frank McKenzie with an update today that no one wanted to hear about the drone strike in Afghanistan the 29th of August that we were told was necessary to prevent an attack on American troops. Our investigation now concludes that the strike was a tragic mistake. With details on that, more from the general. Having thoroughly reviewed the findings of the investigation and the supporting analysis by interagency partners, I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. This is a tough break here. This was the strike that followed the terror attack, killed 13 Americans outside the airport in Kabul. Went after a white Toyota sedan that they said was loaded with explosives. The investigation was based around video evidence and on interviews with more than a dozen people, according to the New York Times, including the driver's co-workers and family members in Kabul. So what is the political fallout? Or has everyone already turned away from Afghanistan? We turn to our Friday Reporters Roundtable with Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg Radio and TV Political Director Jody Schneider. Jody, you were mentioning just a little while ago about this being a tough week for the Biden administration. You made reference to this headline. This is not what the president wanted to hear. That's right. This is yet another you know, tough thing. We were saying that, obviously, the booster shot uh, politics, uh, the, the French politics, they pulled their uh, ambassador. But now we have this question of, you know, who knew what when. And yeah. uh, this is really adding on to the Afghanistan uh, story. And this is the Afghanistan story. Obviously, the Biden administration wants to move past. They've made it very clear. We've pulled out. We, you know, we are sorry for any losses. Uh, we tried to get as many Americans out as we could. Could. But this really then raises all those questions that were you know, being raised those weeks in August. Uh, it also raises another question, and we have a good story on the terminal about this. Um, it raises questions about the competency in U.S. foreign policy 
of the current administration. Uh, Joe Biden was coming into uh, into office saying, you know, Donald Trump has basically, uh, you know, been a diplomatic bomb thrower, as we say in the story, didn't care, America first, ruined relationships, and Joe Biden was supposed to heal those. Well, some of the things this week show that that is hardly happening, and it raises the question as to whether, um, you know, th- that healing that maybe started uh, has come to an end. Also raises questions, Jody, about this over-the-horizon approach that they've been talking about. Never mind over-the-horizon. We didn't get it right even when we had people who were still there, boots on the ground. That's right. And so it tells you now that we're gone, um, you know, what is happening and, and raises the specter of all the fears that had that had come up about what our uh, exit could look like and what it would leave behind. Jack Fitzpatrick, I recall uh, a news conference with the Republican leadership in the House Kevin McCarthy, surrounded by uh, his fellow leaders in the Republican Party, just lambasting the Biden administration, making it clear that they are going to make this a campaign issue going into the midterms. This is just another brick in the wall here. Yeah, this is clearly going to be an issue that Republicans don't just let go. And and to some extent, maybe some Democrats who were not happy with uh, how the pullout from Afghanistan happened, even if they support it. Mm-hmm. I did notice uh, almost immediately you saw Ted Cruz on Twitter saying, uh, you know, we need to know to what extent the U.S. federal government trusted information on the uh, the, str- the strikes and the people they were targeting from the Afghan from uh, Taliban. It did. It was there a level of trust in the Taliban that contributed to the assumption that we could do over the horizon uh, capabilities that, you know, these are early, early responses, early questions about it. But this is obviously going to be a politicized issue that doesn't go away anytime soon. Absolutely. Uh, And and again, it's going to be a question of whether people have long enough memories, right? I mean, are people still, or when I say people, the general population, voters watching what's happening in Kabul, or will they need to be reminded with political ads for the next year? Well, this is a, a pretty dominant issue in the news, I think, for good reason, not only because of the the bad parts of how this has gone, but the significance of the decision alone to pull out of Afghanistan. Now, we're a ways off from the election, mm-hmm. and you can think of a million examples of things that were huge in the news cycle a year out from an election that didn't turn out to be the dominant issue. The the thing about Republicans, though, is as the minority party, they can switch to another issue if there's another issue that helps them. And, and you know, they're, they're just playing the cards they're dealt. It's a significant enough thing, though, so that, you know, it, it could be an issue as we get closer to November. I'll ask both of you, does this impact the debate over uh, the, the Defense Authorization Act that's being debated now, defense spending? Jody, do you think Republicans will be uh, looking for more money for, gosh, God only knows what operations in Afghanistan or say less money for the resettling of refugees. Does it impact the debate at all? Well, I'll let Jack, who's our uh, appropriations expert, weigh mm-hmm. in specifically on that. But what I would say is that while this seems to be, you know, such a tough and it's been a tough month for the administration uh, and that this is, you know, something that's front and center now, Americans do have short attention spans and uh, the midterms are you know, about 14 months away. And yeah. also, again, um, even though it's, you know, not something I think that says a lot about Americans around the world, we do tend to 
to uh, downplay foreign policy. People vote, and they vote particularly uh, in, uh, in House races uh, with their own set of concerns, which are pocketbook concerns. Absolutely. As history has shown us, Jack, the NDAA is, uh, is up for a vote pretty soon, right? They've got to get this done. Does this impact the debate at all, or is it separate? It plays into the debate. I don't know if it necessarily has a huge impact, because it actually seemed to an extent like lawmakers were on a track to come together and push back a little against Biden, who said, uh, let's essentially flatline defense spending. And there already started to be some bipartisan support for about a $25 billion increase over what Biden requested. So it, it coincides with a little bit of bipartisan pushback. And I think as we go to a floor debate and then the appropriations defense debate, it'll play into that. But it, it, to some extent, I think Biden didn't hold all the cards on the issue of defense spending hmm. and, and foreign policy. And there was always maybe going to be a little bit of pu- pushback, even with a, a bipartisan flavor to it. I'm wondering before we go away, what, what's on your minds ahead of this uh, this protest tomorrow? If if you think we've already talked this out, or Jody, if you have concerns when you see fences going back up around the U.S. Capitol. I think what that I actually think the fences going up is is a good sign. It shows that we t- paid attention. Um, there, you know, there were all these hearings and all this discussion after January 6th about how didn't they know and how could they miss this. And uh, tomorrow, first of all, there won't be any lawmakers at the Capitol. It's a Saturday, yeah. and they've been told to stay away. So, uh, and and the National Guard's on speed dial, and uh, and they're getting ready. So I actually think it's it's a good sign. I, th- I hope we've learned some lessons here, and I I hope it it will not be an issue. There was uh, there was quite a debate over uh, spending uh, money to secure the Capitol, Jack. The House and Senate both passed that deal, right? This is, are they investing in hardening? Uh, the capital for events like these? Yeah, they've done some of the upfront stuff, and they've essentially had the debate over fencing, and this is temporary fencing going up. There is going to need to be some follow-up over the course of maybe a few years Mm -hmm. in just the regular appropriations uh, bills. But, But, you know, the fact that they sort of had that hash out in terms of taking down the permanent or more permanent fence and it looked like they got this temporary fence up very quickly. Sure and if they if they take it down quickly, then it, it's sort of settled. If this stays up for a while, there's probably going to be Republican pushback, as there was before, yeah. saying Pelosi's overreaching with the security measures. But it, assuming it comes down pretty quickly, it seems they have sort of uh, hashed out the, the fencing issues in Congress. Well, to our listeners here in Washington, D.C., be careful tomorrow with uh, with where you're going and what you do. Let the Let law enforcement do its work. How about next week, guys? I'd love to hear from each of you. Uh, Jody, we're going to start talking about the CR, funding the government, a continuing resolution with rules to be uh, drawn up on Monday. Are they going to get this done in time? Well, that's the question. And what do they try <laughs> to put on that CR? And do the uh, do the Democrats end up having to do it by themselves, right. uh, which may be the case? And there's that debt ceiling looming out there. Oh, and Joe Biden's infrastructure package. Oh, so yeah. uh, there's a lot of things on the plate uh, th- this week. I do think they get it done. I don't think people want a repeat of 2013. I mm-hmm. actually think they get the debt ceiling done. They don't want a repeat of that downgrade in 2011. But uh, how they do that it's you know going to be messy to watch do they have to do a standalone debt ceiling uh, jack or do they throw that into the continuing resolution and, and, and pin republicans to the wall with that it may be the case that the democrats combine the two to make it tough uh, and and put Republicans in a tough position. But Republicans have made it clear the votes aren't going to be there, so they're probably ultimately going to have to separate the two. Got it. Stay tuned for more on this next week. 
Always love the Reporters Roundtable. Jack, thank you. Great work. And Jody, thanks for being with us in New York. Bloomberg Sound On brought to you by SEI. Challenges highlight one's character, partnership, and resilience. At SEI, they act as one community with their clients. Go to SEIC.com slash banks and have a weekend. Be safe out there and stay cool if you're in D.C. I'm Joe Matthew. I'll meet you back here Monday for the fastest hour in politics. It's sound on. If you don't catch us live, subscribe to the podcast. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.